Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Houthi rebel faction in Yemen says there will be more attacks on Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure. Saturday's attack on the Abqaiqa oil facility has President Trump locked and loaded for a response. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia blame Iran for the attack. Fears of a wider conflict has spiked oil prices. With me is Juan Cole, professor of history at the University of Michigan. He's been writing about this on his in his informed comment blog. Good to talk with you again, Juan. It's good to talk with you, Jerome. Uh, from the U.S. point of view, if there are Iranian weapons here and they weren't launched from Yemen, do you have a smoking gun incident here? Well, I think that it's early days to... Uh, to come to those conclusions. Uh, I I think there's a high likelihood that these are Iranian weapons. Uh, I don't think it can be ruled out that that the Houthis fired them. Uh, Last May, the Houthis uh, hit Aramco pumping stations, uh, one of them 850 miles from uh, Sana'a, the the Yemeni capital. Uh, this was probably about a thousand miles, so they have the capacity to to hit long distance targets. Uh, if they used uh, um, uh, smart weapons, uh, they could just put the coordinates in, and they would hit the target. Uh, so, uh, I, I it just seems to me that uh, the rush to locate the origins of the uh, of the attack is premature and that people are ruling out the Houthis uh, prematurely. I I have no strong opinion on the matter. I'm I'm not an expert in drone warfare. uh, And uh, so I'm I'm open to to evidence, but I don't think there is any evidence yet. And I think drones uh, defy a lot of our expectations for uh, intelligence because uh, they're very hard to track. Uh, They don't give up off much of a heat signature uh, they're tiny, uh, they can't necessarily be seen. And initially, you can see that there was a, a stampede to say that the launch site was from Iraq by presumably Shiite militias there. That's now being ruled out by Secretary of State Pompeo. Uh, so I, th- I think the story is changing hour by hour, and uh, we should just keep an open mind. It does bring to mind the question of how much daylight there is between the Houthis in Yemen and Iran. Uh, some people in the news and in the administration talk about them in the same breath as the same thing, as a, as the same unit. Other people suggest they are uh, not as closely allied as you would think. Um, how do we do does uh, does this incident kind of put that in relationship in a new light? Well, certainly there's a relationship between Iran and the Houthis, and uh, it does seem that Iran has provided them with these uh, drones. Uh, so, uh, however, uh, the, the Houthis are an indigenous Yemeni movement, and their uh, discontents with the Saudis are homegrown. Uh, the Saudis belong to a uh, a version of the Wahhabi branch of Islam, which is uh, extremely hardline and anti-Shiite. The Zaydis are not the kind of Shiites that are in Iraq and Iran. Uh, and uh, in some ways, uh, the, the Zaydi tradition is kind of in between Sunnism and Shiism. Uh, but uh, they have, have felt besieged by the Saudis uh, even before 2015, when the Saudis launched a war on them, uh, in the course of which the Saudis have dropped thousands of bombs on uh, on the Houthis, on civilian apartment buildings, on hospitals, schools, bridges, uh, ports, uh, as well as uh, targeting uh, uh, Houthi military outposts. Uh, so this has been a brutal four and a half year uh, Saudi intensive bombardment of uh, this group. And uh, from my point of view, if you were looking for motive, the Houthis have every reason to hit uh, the Saudi oil installations to try to weaken an enemy that has been hitting them over and over again. Ten million of the 28 million Yemenis are uh, food insecure, which is to say they're one uh, one, uh, uh, mishap away from starving to death. 
Uh, so um, I don't think there's command and control from Iran to the Houthis. I don't think the Iranians can say, dear Houthis, please do X and they'll do it. And I think the Houthis have their own reasons. Were they behind this to have done it? One of the things you pointed out in your blog post this morning was that all during the Iran and Iraq war, that these two countries who were killing millions of people um, did not attack each other's oil fields. Well, they did occasionally attack each other's oil fields, but there was a, a fair level of restraint. Uh, they didn't destroy each other's oil fields. Uh, they certainly didn't do the kind of damage that we saw over the weekend uh, to the uh, Saudi facilities to one another because they both understood that if they adopted that tactic, then they'd just bankrupt each other and both of them would be penniless. Uh, and so there was a kind of you know, mutual assured destruction doctrine operating the same way that nuclear powers don't go to war with one another or haven't ever so far. And it seems like the way the Iranians and the Saudis behave now is like that. They, they, don't, um, they don't come into any kind of full contact. Well, uh, you know, that's the reason for which I'm a little skeptical of the claim uh, that the Iranians uh, just hit the Saudis. It's, it's not the Iranian style, it's, it, uh, and, and it violates this principle of, of uh, mutual assured destruction. The one caveat here is, though, that the United States has placed under the Trump administration a, a, wide, a worldwide uh, economic blockade on Iran and has prevented it from selling its petroleum abroad. It's just gone around to Japan and South Korea and India and so forth and said, look, you know, if you if you do business with Iran, we'll cut you off without a dime. We won't let you play in the American market. Uh, we'll fine you uh, if you use dollars and so forth. So the Iranians in some ways no longer have anything to lose. Uh, that 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 it may be that the mutual assured destruction doctrine won't operate in a situation where the Iranians are already strangled uh, and and you know the equivalent of their oil fields being taken out has already occurred by other means by 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 this economic blockade uh, and so they may simply be uh, saying to the world uh, if we can't. Uh, we export our petroleum. We can't have an ordinary economy if our people are not going to be able to afford uh, basic medicine. Uh, then other people are going to suffer in the region as well. I'm talking with Juan Cole from the University of Michigan, and we're discussing the attacks on Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure over the weekend. Um, now, it seems like along those lines, I was listening to Dennis Ross this morning on Morning Edition, and the former U.S. diplomat was saying that we have no effective deterrent on Iran. Uh, he was arguing that the U.S. should bring diplomatic pressure on the Europeans to do more. But it seems, you know, like in a lot of quarters, the, the interpretation is, well, we've got to use military force as the deterrent, deterrent pressure here. Well, I, you know, I, I don't think it can be ruled out that Pompeo will convince Trump uh, to do some sort of symbolic uh, uh, strike the way they did on Syria uh, a couple years ago. I would be very surprised if, if Trump uh, w could be convinced to launch an all-out war. Uh, Trump seems so far, and he's an erratic thinker, and so you can't be sure where he's going at any one time. But so far, he's fairly consistently seen uh, his own base as hostile to the expenditure of blood and treasure by the United States in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of working people in the United States who voted for Trump felt as though Bush ran off and wasted $6 trillion of their money and uh, deprived them of, of jobs and as a result. And so Trump so far has just been reluctant to go that route. Uh, he has been willing to support the Saudis in their war on Yemen. And so were a Gulf War to break out, you know, you could imagine the U.S. behind the scenes lending logistical and strategic advice. And again, there may be a symbolic strike on Iran. I don't know. But I, my reading of Trump is that he won't want to go the war route, especially since he wants to be reelected next year, and it, it just is too unpredictable. It's interesting that most of the uh, discussion does revolve around whether or not there will be attack, an attack on Iran. 
nobody really says, well, we should double down on creating a peace in Yemen. This would seem to be one way to defang the Houthis, the, the uh, people you think are the Iranian proxies. Well, certainly uh, the Yemen war is a fruitless war. Uh, it's even gotten to the point where Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, the two Gulf countries that invaded Yemen uh, and uh, uh, tried to overthrow the Houthis so far without any success, are now fighting one another in Yemen. Uh, so it's it's a tripartite struggle, or, or there are more more parties yet than that. Uh, and it's going nowhere. It, it, it's it's a stupid war. Uh, the idea that you could the Saudis have largely just bombed the place, and the, you know you can't defeat a guerrilla movement like the Houthis from thirty thousand feet. The United States already demonstrated that in several wars. So uh, yes, the, that 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 conflict needs to be brought to an end. But the other thing is that uh, you can't put Iran under this maximum pressure, under this uh, economic uh, total blockade, and expect it to go quietly. Uh, so the cancellation of the uh, 2015 Iran nuclear deal by Trump, a deal that the United Nations inspectors say was working perfectly and, and to which Iran, with which Iran was complying, uh, and then the, the slapping on Iran, despite its compliance, uh, of these uh, very severe, I mean, I think the, the most severe economic sanctions ever applied to any country in the world uh, outside of wartime, uh, has is, has produced this instability in the Gulf. Uh, you know, you lock a, a country in a, in a dark closet and, and try to starve it out, it, it's going to, to fight back. So um, I think the, the whole maximum pressure policy of the Trump administration uh, has produced this instability, and that needs to be rethought. Some people seem to think that everything that's happened proved John Bolton right. The Wall Street Journal says uh, everything John Bolton said was true, that and, and, you know, maximum pressure is we need more maximum pressure now. They're, they're going in the, the completely other direction. Well, it's it's typical of a warmongering mindset, which uh, prevails uh, at the Rupert Murdoch press, uh, that uh, they uh, they're unable to connect the dots. So you will notice that in 2015, after the nuclear deal was signed, and in 2016, we heard no news from the Gulf. There was no nothing going on there. Uh, and then after the, the deal was canceled and the United States uh, tried to starve out Iran, uh, now we're seeing conflict. So which way is the direction of causality? One of the interesting things here is this is another conflict about oil. It becomes uh, an oil conflict. And in theory, people are trying to cut down on their oil usage and make it something that is not a conflictual matter or a thing that is harming the planet anymore. I'm talking with uh, people from the group's Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise Movement after this, and they they are uh, committed to a world without fossil fuels, And we are, but we are still stuck in this really old-fashioned kind of uh, resource conflict thing. Oh, sure. Well, and, and, and have been for a long time. There's a, a real sense in which World War II was a, a conflict over petroleum. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it's a, it, is, it puts the United States at risk. You know, Trump keeps saying we're energy independent or we're exporters of, of energy and so forth, but it, it's, all, it's all smoke and mirrors. The United States produces about 12 million uh, barrels a day of petroleum. It, it uses over 20 million barrels a day of petroleum. So there's a substantial shortfall. We do need to import. A lot of the production is, is by uh, hydraulic fracturing, which uh, is toxic to the environment. It leaves behind toxic water. It causes earthquakes. It, it, it's environmentally an extremely stupid thing to do. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the alternative is, is to buy uh, electric cars and run them off solar panels on your roof, which is what I've been doing. Uh, and, uh, and it's a much better alternative. You don't have a, a gasoline bill. You're not 
beholden to Saudi Arabia or Iran, uh, and, uh, you're, and, and you're not producing uh, carbon dioxide that's causing uh, massive environmental damage in the world. It, it, um, it seems like a lot of people who would, you know, even uh, conservative Republicans might want to adopt that kind of idea. It would seem to be a security idea. Oh, yeah. The U.S. national security depends on it going green as, possi- as soon as it possibly can. Uh, not only, and there are many reasons for this, not only does it uh, remove our dependence on foreign sources of, of energy, uh, but also uh, it, um, the, the, some of our security uh, threats are, are going to come from, from the climate crisis itself. The climate emergency is, is going to threaten our coasts. Uh, it's going to uh, cause severe weather uh, and uh, wildfires in the southwest. Uh, so uh, the, the security of the country uh, depends on, on uh, going to net zero carbon uh, as soon as, as possible. And we, shouldn't, we should be pressuring the rest of the world to do that, too. We're not setting a good example ourselves. Uh, but uh, in, in addition uh, to all that, Whoever makes the real breakthroughs in things like solar technology, uh, getting high efficiency and low cost through research and development, is is going to make an, a, a boatload of money around the world. And right now, the United States is more or less just giving away that show to to the Chinese. Juan Cole is a professor of history at the University of Michigan. He writes the Informed Comment blog, and it's uh, wrote about the Saudi Arabia attacks on their oil infrastructure today. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's been happening in the Middle East. You're one of the best shows on, on foreign affairs in the country, Jerome. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we begin a week of climate coverage with members of the Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion, two groups that have brought a new urgency to the climate movement. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. WBEZ is participating this week in Covering Climate Now, a collaboration of more than 250 news outlets to strengthen coverage of the climate story. All the outlets have committed to running a week's worth of climate coverage in the lead-up to the United Nations Climate Action Summit in New York on September 23rd. At the U.N. Climate Action Summit, the world's governments will submit plans to meet the Paris Agreement's pledge to keep global temperature rise well below 2 degrees Celsius. In order to encourage action, millions of people will take part in a global climate strike on Friday. The Chicago strike will be at Federal Plaza. Among the groups injecting a new sense of urgency to the climate movement are the Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion. They are forcing politicians to respond with climate forums and no fossil fuel pledges. They are forcing more media coverage and new terms like climate crisis. Let's spend some time and get to know members of both groups. With me here is Kirsten Jovita, an organizer with the Sunrise Movement. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Aiden Lane is here. He's an organizer with Sunrise, and he is an organizer for Youth Climate Strike and is sporting their sweatshirt. Nice to meet you. And nice to meet you, too. Uh, from Extinction Rebellion, uh, Jenny Kendler is here, and it's great to see you again. We've met before. It's a pleasure to be here again. And Adam Carter is here with Extinction Rebellion. Good to see you. Nice to meet you. 
Um, I wonder, Adam, do you want to start us off and tell us, uh, Adam, Extinction Rebellion's pretty, it's a new organization, period, and it's new to Chicago. Um, tell us about what's been happening here. Um, well, uh, yeah, Extinction Rebellion's been around for a little, uh, almost a year and a half, two years now. It started in the U.K., and uh, the people there in the U.K. were able to shut down London uh, several times now, and they're planning to do again, do that again uh, here in October. Um, and here in Chicago, we, I think the group started in January. I've been with the group since June, and since June we've done uh, multiple actions, uh, our most recent one being uh, September 5th. Uh, we did an action against BlackRock and in solidarity with um, the indigenous people of Brazil, whose homes are being burned down uh, by uh, Bolsonaro and the Brazilian government and uh, pushing the Amazon to a critical point of dieback, um, with, you know, and it's an essential part of the the climate process of this planet. So, uh, what did you, what do you do in real life? Why did you join? Oh, okay, um, I used to be a machinist. Um, I used to make plastic injection molds, um, and then one day I decided. I mean, I w I was thinking about it a lot, but one day I essentially decided that I couldn't do this anymore. Um, that I was helping uh, support the system with my skills and knowledge and ability. And I feel like this system that we live in and live under is a toxic system, and it's killing the planet. I mean, I don't feel that. I, I believe that, and I know that. That's what the science tells us, is that we are critically running out of time to deal with the problem. And, and we're very close to a point of no return uh, for the survival of most species on this planet, including the human species. So, so I imagine that's why Extinction Rebellion spoke to you. That's a yeah, no, totally. I mean, yeah, it's a total punk rock name. I love the name. <laughs> but, uh, but it's deadly serious. It is about a rebellion against extinction. And um, Jenny Kendler is mm -hmm. here, and you um, bring a artistic element to Extinction Rebellion. Lots of the Extinction Rebellion events uh, have interesting characters, have interesting things going on. Um, tell us a little about yourself and, and uh, the things you're bringing to Extinction Rebellion. Sure. So I've been an environmental artist and um, an activist probably for about 15 years, um, and that's where we met previously talking yep. about an uh, art installation that included live trees. Um, but I think that what really drew me to Extinction Rebellion is not only this feeling um, of what uh, Joanna Macy says, that we are actually so incredibly fortunate to be in this moment where our choices are so clear, that we, um, a lot of people may think that this is a frightening time. I think that that's what many people are experiencing in their lives, their daily work. It's frightening to face the despair that may sort of lie behind this curtain when we actually confront what the climate crisis may mean for us. But the, um, she says that it's such a beautiful time to be able to make this choice where we can choose to be on the side of life. And I think that that is what drove me to really want to be part of Extinction Rebellion. And the other thing that I just admire about the organization in terms of the way that it uses art and culture change and a really new interdisciplinary approach to action so um, Extinction Rebellion's focus particularly is on nonviolent direct action. And I just think that art has a really important role there. It's really, um, like Adam says, uh, what we do is deadly serious. But also uh, we recognize that it's really important to have regenerative culture be a part of that, to have fun while we're doing this. Is there um, is was there something about that that w w the London Rebellion spoke to you? Was there some kind of thing that really hit your artistic uh, bow? Yeah, I guess I think that um, I guess the word interdisciplinarity is really what what called to me that it felt like um, this is a moment where we need all the tools in the toolbox, right? So we need people doing policy work, and we need white papers, and we need scientists, but we also need musicians and we need people who are um, know about street theater and we need people who can build big beautiful colorful installations and what I loved about what they were doing in London with Extinction Rebellion is that it was a fusion of all of these things it was really that there was a place for everyone there were toddlers in the streets there were grandmothers fighting for their grandchildren and every single person whether they were a doctor who could be a street medic or um, you know someone who was 
designing leaflets had a place in this. And that's what I want to say to the people of Chicago is that um, if you're feeling afraid of what we're confronting with the climate crisis, um, whatever you're good at, you can you can bring that to bear to fight on the side of life. Explain some of the things you've brought uh, or the Extinction Rebellion in general has done with creativity because I know that you guys have, uh, uh, well, it doesn't sound fun, but the black snake of death, you know, it, it's pretty cool. What doesn't sound fun about that? <laughs> There's, you've had some characters that are all in black and uh, animal characters, animal heads, and all sorts of things are going on at your thing. At yeah, we, uh, you know, we're working late at night to get this uh, whole coast, host of characters ready for this march where we were lucky enough to partner with Jovi, who really supported us through her work at Greenpeace and at Sunrise, um, and bringing a coalition of people together to meet and have a rally in front of the Brazilian government, um, and or sorry, in front of the Brazilian consulate here. And we had, um, you know, well over 100 people in costume with these wreaths on their head that represented burnt rainforest. People were smudged with ash that came from an actual biochar kiln that I used for another art project. Um, we had six animal guardians wearing these like big, beautiful black um, constructed masks and gowns representing the non-humans who are suffering because of the climate emergency. And we marched to BlackRock to call them out for their complicity. You know, they're the one of the world's largest um, investment groups that really are responsible for $6 trillion in assets. And a lot of that money, I'm afraid, is being leveraged to turn the precious resources of our planet into profit and in the process is really contributing to the climate emergency. We're talking about Extinction Rebellion, the, one of the organizations that's bringing a new urgency to the climate movement. Also with us are folks from the Sunrise Movement, and I want to talk with Kirsten Jovita here, an organizer from the Sunrise Movement, and Aiden Lane. Um, Kirsten, tell us a little about yourself. You, you, um, um, Jenny was saying, mentioned you were with Greenpeace, and you, you've been active before. Yeah, yeah, I, I do have a lot of hats. Um, but yeah, my name is Kirsten Jovita. A lot of people call me Jovi. Um, I'm 20 years old, an activist in um, Chicago in the environmental justice movement, but, you know, trying as hard as possible to be an ally in many other social movements here. Um, and grateful to have a job with um, an amazing environmental organization as Greenpeace, where I can, you know, have a job and organizing and really grateful for it because a lot of our work that goes into this into this fight and into this movement is volunteering and is a lot of, you know, those late nights and putting ourselves, our skills that we have um, into this fight. Um, so very grateful to be working with Greenpeace and then also recognizing that I am a youth in this movement and um, a youth in America. Um, and that's why I really recognize and, you know, um, relate to the Sunrise Movement as well because they're really big mission is making climate change the biggest issue in America um, and also electing leaders who will stand by us and really make this a possibility to fight um, because we were just talking about this a big you know reason we've fallen into this hole is a lot of complacency with our government and you know just decades of corruption um, within our systems that need to be tackled and need to be you know need to take back democracy um, <laughs> um, yeah and and also um, having many or passions too within this movement you know I love the artistic um, aspect within Extinction Rebellion and being a part of that I love being a part of actions at Greenpeace I love being in like the politics scene at Sunrise um, and I think we, like just like Jenny said we need all hands on deck we need to be tackling you know the government systems the corporate systems um, and then also doing this global national and local work at all levels. One of the things about the Sunrise Movement that um, I think is yeah, driving its energy is its equity idea and the mm -hmm. idea that we've really got to make this work for everyone. Yes. And <laughs> how did how did you did that speak to you? Is that why, why you're there? Yeah, completely. Especially one of our biggest, the biggest priority is the Green New Deal and making sure that gets passed and making sure it comes into fruition with um, the upcoming years and. The Green New Deal, that what sets it apart from all these other, you know, plans or the New Deal originally and during the FDR administration um, is that big emphasis emphasis on equity um, within our country that, you know, we've been lacking for decades. Um, and being a Latinx woman in this movement, too, is very exciting. And, um, you know, historically speaking, environmental justice movements have been predominantly white and um you know, 
when it comes down to the climate crisis, the communities impacted the most are marginalized, lower-income communities. Um, so I definitely really love being a leader in this movement as a Latinx woman, um, especially at a time when it feels like everything that I have is under attack. Uh, you know, my body, my planet, um, my heritage. Um, it really, you know, was the time to step in and Sunrise seemed like the perfect home to really put my, my passion into. Aiden Lane is here from Sunrise as well. He is also an organizer with Youth Climate Strike. Great to meet you, Aiden. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Tell us about yourself. Um, <clears throat> uh, well, so I've been uh, I've been caring about the environment for as long as I can remember. Um, but then I always thought that this was like all the environmental stuff was a place for adults to make a big difference. I never really knew that kids could make a difference, like trying to save the environment or really in anything. Um, and then about December of last year, I saw Greta's speech to the United Nations. And I remember thinking, wow, like the youth can actually do something. Like I can actually do something before like I can vote. And I just really wanted to get involved. I knew like this is what I wanted to do. And then I heard that the youth climate strike movement um, like it started in America and just I immediately reached out to the organizers in Illinois and I was like, I need to join your team. Like this is something I'll put so much time into. Um, and then just I've been doing that for six months now and I've met so many other people through it and I've joined other groups like Sunrise and Greenpeace. Just like keep doing more and more. Where do you go to school? Um, I go to school at Nutra High School um, up in North Shore and uh, – We've got a pretty good environmental club, and um, I think that's – I've been involved in that with like, three years, and we get a lot of people from there to go down to the strike, and it's, like, a really good place to reach out to other people at my school. Now, the strike's happening on Friday, and uh, how, how are you feeling about it? Because this time it's different. It's not just a youth strike. It is a general strike. Uh, everybody's supposed to come. I, I, do you feel like there's action happening? Yeah, I do really think there's action happening. Um, after the first strike, actually, the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations called for an emergency climate action summit, uh, which is taking place uh, for the three days after the strike. Um, and so we actually get stuff done, and especially with this strike, um, we have 500 people who have said they're going on our Facebook event. Um, and that's like, more than three times as many as the people that said they were going to our first two strikes. And on those strikes, we got 500 people. So we're expecting like over 1,000 people at the strike. Um, it's going to be really big. Um, it, it, you've created such outsized leverage in the Sunrise Movement. I think you've you know, really put a lot of pressure on politicians, uh, sit-ins. Uh, talk about some of the tactics that you're, you're using, Jovi, to really uh, to put the pressure on. Yeah, um, I'm a big fan of calling out calling out politicians because they they take an oath to represent us and again um, have been failing and not all of them but have been failing and um, it's really cool to take that power back and in a nonviolent you know way um, which really allows anyone to take action and again what I love about Sunrise is that we are nonviolent in word deed. Um, and it allows everyone to be able to take action with us, doing things like the sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office, you know, these established Democrats who you, um, you know, are, we are supposed to rely on and still aren't taking this matter seriously. Um, Bird-dogging, um, really capturing on camera where these politicians can't deny where they stand if they're taking fossil fuel money um, or not. Um, what else have we done as nonviolent direct actions? Um and another big part of our tactic is, you know, this community building. You know, we sing songs, we do chants together, and it's um, a really beautiful community to to represent the solidarity that we have within each other. I noticed uh, during the recent climate um, forum, mm -hmm. uh, one of the Sunrise people from Chicago, Isaac Larkin, got up and he uh, had a question for Joe Biden. I thought yes. we got a clip of Isaac putting it to Joe Biden here. Senator Biden, I'm 27 years old. Half of all greenhouse gas emissions ever generated by the entire history of human civilization have been released in my lifetime. This despite the now well-documented fact that 40 years ago, scientists at Exxon and Shell knew and reported to their bosses 
that burning fossil fuels was warming the planet and would destabilize the climate. Fossil fuel corporations, their executives, their trade and industry organizations, and their think tank front groups have waged a decades-long campaign of lying to the public about the science, and it has brought us to a crisis that threatens the entire human race. Now, I know that you signed the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge, but I have to ask, how can we trust you to hold these corporations and executives accountable for their crimes against humanity when we know that tomorrow you are holding high-dollar fundraiser hosted by Andrew Goldman, a fossil fuel executive? He is not a fossil fuel executive. I'm told. He, he, he is not a fossil fuel executive. That's Isaac Larkin putting it to Joe Biden at the recent climate forum. Uh, and that, that, that became a big news story, and it's uh, an important thing to hear about. Yeah, I'm so so proud to have Isaac as part of our local Chicago Hub member. He really he really did us proud out there. Um, yeah, that's the perfect example of bird dogging and and how we hold these politicians accountable. Um, and you know, taking these actions. And another big big part of it is the strike. You know, it's a, a great way. You know, we can't always have these opportunities of giant you know, or of publicized events with like one on one, but everyone can engage in this strike, um, and it's what we need to do at a local level. How do you feel about um, uh, the the person in question here? Was he a fossil fuel executive? Uh, you know, Joe Biden kind of obfuscated on that. He's not on the SEC forums and all these kind of things. Um, uh, how do how do we how do we know what's what? Great question. Um, I believe too during the climate forum that the host went more into detail on it and was like just for clarification um, and really put that research out there. And again, um, I think another big system that needs to be held accountable is the news as well. Um, we have a corrupt news system owned by the same people that are corrupting our government. Um, and it's, you know, really, I think, again, take, taking back that education and taking back that power of um, looking into what our representatives really represent and who they're working for. Um, do you guys from Extinction Rebellion want to uh, pipe in about the media or anything? How do you feel about it, Am? Um, you know, I feel like one of the essential problems with the climate emergency is that people in the media, politicians, um, even ourselves, we don't want to face and tell the truth about what's going on and about the uh, the depth of the crisis. I mean, I grew up when I was a kid, you know, I didn't think that the ice caps would melt in my lifetime. That was not ever a thought on my radar as a kid in up to my 20s, even in my 30s. And now we're looking at in the next five years, uh, the ice cap will be totally melted during the summertime. And that, to me, is just profoundly insane that that we as a species um, have destabilized the climate so much that we, we are, are making the ice cap melt. We're making the glaciers and the Himalayas melt, which will lead to, you know, possibly 400 million people not having access to fresh water in, in a decade, um, that we're acidifying the ocean, which is like one of the primary... Uh, causes of extinction if you go back through the geological record and we have no idea how to fix that you know all we know that we can do to stop it is to stop emitting uh, co2 and other fossil fuel emissions um, and and we have to start really thinking about doing that and making that happen because if we don't we're going to have all these crises coming together and we're not going to be able to deal with any of them mm-hmm we're talking with members of Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise Movement, and we're going to take a quick break and be back with more. It's part of our Covering Climate Now coverage this week on Worldview. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and WBEZ is participating in the Covering Climate Now, global collaboration of more than 250 news outlets strengthening the coverage of the climate story, and so is Here and Now. Here and Now is participating in Covering Climate Now, and you can stay tuned after Worldview for more climate coverage all this week on WBEZ. 
And we're talking today with members of Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise Movement, two organizations that are putting some new urgency into the climate movement. And I think, you know, this week and the UN conference that's coming up here on September 23rd, it's all about action. And people, um, some people don't know what to do about climate. I think there's a sense of helplessness uh, for a lot of people. And are there things you would suggest to people to do to to start making action? Um, Jovi, you want to start? Sure. Um, I think there's many plans to action going back to what Jenny said, you know, whatever skill you have, you know, like there's a place for everyone in this movement, um, whether you're an artist, whether you're, you know, a construction worker, like we, we need everyone on board with this fight. Um, and I feel like, you know, coming up most recently is that climate strike we need everyone out there we need everyone bringing their networks out there um you know just simply texting or calling your closest relatives and explaining why this is important and one of the things we do at sunrise is we share our stories um, of why you know what the climate crisis means to us um to me it means you know my sister who has no you know family history of you know lung um lung respiratory issues um you know growing up and into this world and having to use an inhaler every day because of the air quality in, in big cities like Chicago, um, and this being the reality for many children coming into this world. Um, and that's, you know, something that hits hard of, you know, innocent children to me that had no part in this and have no guilt to put be put on them mm-hmm. being affected by this climate crisis. Um, and we need to be telling those stories and bringing more people into this because we know that human interaction is so important. Um, I also think, you know, bringing back to the com- conversation about people of color in this movement. Um, we talk about how a lot of them are predominantly white, and I think um, I just went to a Sunrise Summit in the West Coast, and one of the things that we talked about a lot being in, like, you know, people of color identity groups um, is, you know, owning that responsibility that, they, that we need to step up and we need to be talking to our peers and bringing them in because simply talking about, like, this issue isn't going to change it and, being accountable for ourselves and bringing it in and then, you know, being a white ally as well and bringing more people in and, you know, knowing when to step back and listen and, and let, you know, the people that are being affected most talk about what we need to do. Um, Adam, do you want to pipe in there? Yeah, uh, um, I would say that the best call to action, at least for people I know, would be, you know, that if you keep doing what you're doing now, you're doing nothing. Um, and we need people to realize that, you know, we are on this shortened timeline where we can actually affect change. You know, we have five or ten years to to make radical transformations to our society um, to to hopefully mitigate mass death and, and a bunch of terrible other things that are in the cards right now for uh, people uh, – especially in like the equatorial regions of the world, uh, people in Australia, places like that. And so I would, you know, as someone who like worked a job and I worked a job to make money and to be comfortable, you know, I, I sat there and I looked at what I was doing, what uh, my abilities were doing and how I was actually part of this toxic system uh, helping kill the planet. And I think if, if adults out there, uh, you know, come to this climate strike on Friday and and remove themselves just for a little bit from the world that they're in, um, they can begin to see that there's a new world that we can make and make possible and and hopefully uh, uh, limit so much of the suffering that seems to be in the cards. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you want to pipe in there, um, Jenny? Yeah, I guess I wanted to say that um, I know a lot of people are frightened about what's happening with the climate, but also a lot of people are focused on other things like jobs and health care and immigration and the education of their children. And what I want to say is if you care about any of those things, then climate change needs to be your absolute number one top issue that you are voting on in the elections, that you are voting on with your dollar, that you are spending your free time working towards because um, – all of these things are going to be massively impacted by what happens in the next five to ten years. I have a, a ten-month-old daughter. Hello, sorry. <laughs> and I think that I'm so inspired by these youth, um, 
members from Chicago Youth Strike and Sunrise sitting across from me. And I have to say that, like, I, when I think about what um, will be her future, I don't know. That is, like, I, you know, I think that, like, generations past, we could assume our kids are going to get a chance to go to college and follow their passions and, you know, be a musician or whatever their calling may be. And, you know, we're so fortunate to have had those choices here in the West. Not everyone has those. But um, our future is going to be radically destabilized by the climate crisis. And I have no idea what kind of world she will be stepping into. So if you love your children, you need to be involved in this. And that can be coming out on the 23rd. Um, You don't have to know where to start. This is scary for all of us. But um, protest movements, this is not... This is not an aggressive place. We are all coming from a place of community building. We're coming from a place of intersectionality, and we're coming from a place of nonviolence. These are welcoming spaces, and we want you to come in with all of your questions and all of your fears. And I think that um, you will, you know, you will hopefully find that there is going to be a place where you can feel like your life counts. Are any of you encouraged by what's happened already and the achievements you've had? I mean, there wouldn't have been a climate forum if there hadn't been a sunrise. There wouldn't be the word climate crisis if there hadn't been extinction rebellion. Uh, These things are, you're changing verbiage and politics as we know them. Uh, These things are are real and they're part of a a movement that has a, a kind of staccato pace. You, you've got a lot of things on the agenda. Um, are, are you kind of encouraged? Yeah, I think that's one of the best things about joining this movement is that, you know, there is a lot of doom and gloom that you hear about, you know, every single day, but you're surrounded. To me, I mean, I feel so grateful to be surrounded by people who understand this crisis and who are putting in all their all their energy that they can. And it is really a comforting feeling to know that you are not alone in this fight. Um, And we have been having victories, you know, getting, we get caught up in what we have to do right now and what's happening right now. But it's so good to reflect on those victories. Um, We were hoping for a whole debate dedicated to like a national debate dedicated for climate. Um, And we got a seven hour forum, which was amazing. And before this election, you know, climate change wasn't even a top issue in the 2016 election. It got um, no time answered during any of the debates and to now having a seven hour forum with over, you know, so many different candidates, we are definitely seeing victories. Um, and just engagement too. you know, we have so many more people involved in this fight than four years ago as well. Um, and I, I can only see us going up from here, especially, you know, I can speak on in the community that I work in and organize in that it's a really beautiful partnership and community building that's coming together of talking about these intersectional issues and really how we are all, you know, fighting this, this systematic system or the systematic oppressive system. Um, and that to really win it, we need to come together. Yeah, I think um, most of the time you will see the people wanting something done in massive numbers before the politicians actually do something. And right now, the politicians, they're acting pretty slowly. Um, But in the past three years, the amount of people that have said that climate change is one of their top issues that have came out and supported these actions um, and have fought for their future has skyrocketed. Um, And the politicians will follow the people. So even though there's not that much action right now, I am very hopeful that there will be in the near future. Um, now, I wanted to uh, refocus and, and get let people know how to get in touch with you and what kind of things you're going to be doing in the future. Um, Extinction Rebellion, yeah, you're up to, I mean, the climate strike is Friday, and you're going to participate in that for sure. Uh, but there's a whole lot more. Uh, you're just going to keep ticking off events. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, we're going to be part of uh, a pipeline protest uh, on September 27th. Um, uh, we're planning on adding a little flair to that, I guess. Um, and then we're doing, we're part of the international rebellion that starts on October 7th. Um, and uh, it's going to be London, Berlin, Paris, New York, LA, um, Chicago, a bunch of other cities. Uh, that will be having mass uh, actions. Um, Are people going to get arrested? Uh, that's the goal with <laughs> a lot of these, yeah. 
So, um, you know, and the reason, you know, arrest is something that we debate and talk about a lot within our, our group. And, um, but, you know, to make the point that this is deadly serious, uh, people have to be willing to make those kind of sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Um, and if people want to get in touch with Extinction Rebellion, what do they do? So you can find us on um, social media. We're on Instagram, XR Chicago. We're on Facebook. Um, you can Google us, find our website, Extinction Rebellion Chicago. Um, reach out to us. Let us know what you're interested in contributing. And it doesn't have to be um, being willing to be arrested. Um, we do know that uh, nonviolent direct action is a really successful path forward for social change. Social research tells us that only 3.5% of the population needs to be actively involved to create massive cascading tipping points that really can change the way that our societies work. And so I would encourage you to you know, reach out, find Chicago Youth Climate Strike, find Sunrise, find Greenpeace. We're all accessible online um, and just... Um, Figure out what the right place for you is. And um, Sunrise, you, uh, youth, Chicago Youth Climate Strike, uh, do you want to pitch your, pitch your social media? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, we're yeah extremely privileged to live in an age of, of digital communication. Um, so much more like other movements. I was like, how the heck do they have this many sh- people <laughs> striking? Um, but yes, Greenpeace Chicago, um, Instagram, that's our Instagram. And we have a Facebook as well. You can find us. The Internet's a powerful tool. And uh, Friday, Youth Climate Strike. Yeah, um, our main social media is Instagram, Climate Strike IL. Uh, come out to the strike on Friday. We're going to come. Worldview's going to come. We're going to come out there and broadcast. We're going to talk to you. That's great. Thank you so much, Worldview, for all you do. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, I'm glad to be uh, with you, and good luck, and keep up the great work. This has kicked off the first day of our Covering Climate Now coverage, and we'll be back with more tomorrow. We're going to discuss the Great Lakes and what's happening with the Great Lakes and climate. We'll talk with a scientist from Michigan State University about what's happening with fish in the Great Lakes. Stay tuned for that tomorrow on Worldview, and make sure to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Radio Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.